If there's one thing the pandemic showed us, it's just how vital the work of dedicated employees in the healthcare industry really is. But the sector is facing a labor shortage crisis in the next decade. Organizations in every part of the industry are finding it increasingly difficult to attract and retain both clinical and non-clinical staff. So how can HR leaders in healthcare help to turn the tide? So this is the Culture Clinic where my co-founder, Skay and I are constantly learning from HR experts how to build a culture where people love to work. My name is Joe, I'm a co-founder here at Gusto, and today we are joined by Kevin Kirkpatrick, the founder and vice president of search services at the Avery Professional Group. Kevin, maybe we'll kick off and uh, can you tell us just a little bit about yourself? Yeah, by all means, thanks for having me, Joe. Um, I started Avery Professional Group about 15 years ago. It's built on the experience I had working for hospitals as a, uh, in, as a recruitment leader, uh, mostly putting together teams that are both clinical and non-clinical. So we've uh, recently focused mostly on physician search, and we've got clients ranging from coast to coast in Canada uh, and the U.S. Awesome. Okay, well, let's jump right into the topic. So today's topic is retention in healthcare. So maybe we can start on more of a personal level. Kevin, what's the longest you've ever stayed at a company? And, you know, thinking back to that experience, what made you stay there? Um, you know what? I did, uh, I did nine years with a hospital. Uh, it was a mixture of, of employee and uh, consultant. Uh, and it, you know, it was the people, right? And it was really the, the ability to build relationships with people and feel supportive and uh, a lot of growth, right? So I, I was constantly learning new things. I started off recruiting nurses. Next thing I know, I'm recruiting physicians. Then I'm recruiting executives, all within the, the confines of this one, uh, one employer. So it was really, they invested in me, both interpersonally as well as professionally. And so looking at the healthcare industry today, why do you think it's so hard for healthcare organizations to retain employees right now? Well, you know what, and, it, and it's, it, there's going to be jurisdictional things like, you know, in Canada, it's different than in the U.S., but I think the core root is that we haven't made the job of the physician or the job of the nurse easier, right? And we're still holding them to archaic standards and to uh, the expectations that they can see more patients, right? And unfortunately, uh because of the system, and I don't want to blame any individual person, but because of the way that of the system, it, the way it's built, is we just expect physicians and nurses to just see more people, right? So a lot of hospitals are operating at 103% occupancy. Their finances and system is, is built to operate at 85% occupancy. So if you build something that's, you know, you build a car that is, to go at 80 kilometers an hour, but you're constantly driving it at 103 kilometers an hour, eventually it's going to break. And I think the problem is that we have a scarcity of of candidates. You know, I mean, we're not creating more physicians. They've recently started, you know, increasing more family medicine spots and, and things of that nature. But, you know, that's six years from now before it's going to generate any results. Um, we've got emergency departments closing because there's not enough physicians because the workload of a physician in the past, 
you know, maybe they would have seen more patients than they're, than they're able to see now. And, uh, you know, physicians don't want to work seven days a week, nor should we expect them to, right? So, um, you know, I think there's, there hasn't been a adapting of the system to meet the, 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 you know, the, the career expectations of the practitioners. And we just keep putting more and more work on them without giving them any release. Yeah. I mean, I'm personally uh, connected to healthcare in that uh, my, you know, my mother was a nurse, my, you know, her entire career. My wife is actually an emerge, uh, emergency room doctor, just transitioned into family health. Um, and you talk a little bit about systems. And so I'm, you know, exposed to systems in Canada, not so much in the U.S., but I know that some of the technical systems are very antiquated. I mean, there's still faxing documents. There isn't sort of integrated data do you see a big difference between uh, like the technical systems in Canada uh, versus those in the U.S., or are they, you know, struggling with with similar uh, issues? There, there are a lot of similarities. The way healthcare is delivered in the U.S., there's a lot more virtual, a lot more uh, telemedicine than than in Canada. The pandemic brought telemedicine uh, uh, further to the forefront uh, in Canada, so. You know, there's there's delivery ways that are that are different that we it's almost like apples and oranges to some degree. But the challenge I have is that you know all these organizations uh, create this technology that is that is intended to predominantly increase reporting and understanding of budgets, right? Like it's you know we're trying to track things more than we're trying to to push the the workflow. Um, you know, things like, and, I, and I'm, I'm not a, a clinical informatics person by any stretch, but, you know, I've heard organizations that have implemented Epic and it's created more work for them than prior, right? So, you know, there was an article, I think, in the Star that said an average family physician can do 18 hours of charting and paperwork a week that they don't get paid for, right? So, you know, we see these notions of this technology. It often seems driven by leadership and not by the clinical, right? Like I, I'd like to see and hear about instances where, you know, the eMERGE doc decided to, uh, was involved in the triage software, right? Or was involved in, you know, the uh, EMR in the in the eMERGE department, right? Or was involved in the, uh, you know, the patient flow and bed management, right? Because they're directly um, affiliated with the, with, uh, you know, the access to beds within the hospital, right? So, uh, you know, I, I think sometimes these tech companies have the best of intentions, but the uh, implementation has jumped over an important part of involving the clinicians on what's going to make their job easier. Uh, and I think tech tech is a tool. It doesn't, it doesn't change uh, the workflow uh, unless it's directly driven by the clinicians in my mind. Okay, so having worked so closely with healthcare and, and hospitals specifically for, for, for quite some time, what retention strategies have you found are most effective in healthcare companies? Um, so it's interesting. Um, one of the hospitals I've worked for invested a lot of time and energy in career development for their nurses. Um, so you know, they, would, they would send them to take critical care courses. They would send them to take OR courses, um, you know, in an effort to, uh, to up, up staff towards clinical, uh, you know, areas that were short, short staffed. 
But they, in addition to that, each nurse had a thousand dollars a year they could use for courses, right? So their retention was higher because your career could be much longer and diverse within that organization because you were given the tools to maneuver the organization by acquiring the skills. So I think developing it and putting the emphasis on building the skills of your team uh, is definitely a, a, um, a benefit, right? And one of the same hospital actually had like a healthcare leadership uh, certificate put on by Schulich that uh, staff in the, in the hospital could take this 16-week, 10-week course to build leadership skills, right? So if that organization's investing in you, it's ideally going to provide you more opportunities within the organization you're already at, thereby by, uh, by staying. And the, this is one thing that I don't think has uh, gotten legs, but you know, nurses, for instance, are leaving to go to agencies. The reason they go to an agency is, A, they make more money. The, you know, the hospitals and the government can fix that. That's not a difficult thing to do. We have a collective bargaining process that would allow us to change the wages. Uh, secondly, they're going for flexibility, right? Like I started my company, so I would have flexibility of schedule uh, to spend time with my kids and, and stuff like that. So, you know, we can only expect that nurses would want that too. So if they go to an agency, they work when they want to work, right? They, they're not told you have to do X number of shifts per, per week or X number of shifts per month, or there's going to be some punitive action, right? So if hospitals themselves created more of a flexible scheduling model, they would do so. The challenge with that is it requires more staff and puts a greater emphasis on, on uh, recruiting staff. But, um, I, 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 this is anecdotal in my mind, but I would also think that more people would work frequently when they were working when they wanted to, as opposed to when they were told to by their continent to shift, right? Or their seven on, seven off, whatever it may be, right? Okay. So you touched on uh, growth opportunities, uh, flexible schedules, better compensation. Uh, you know, uh, workload, right? At the end of the day, I think the key thing too is that, you know, organizations that manage and support the staff through workload fluctuations, right? If, if your bed census is down, which I don't think it ever is, but if it's down, do you give people corporate opportunities to go do something different, right? Until we find a way to support the work life of our clinicians, the way we do, you know, you mean the staff in every other industry, uh, we will continue that our time retaining. And what role do you think appreciation and recognition plays in retention? I think it's a it it, it 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 plays a big role to be honest with you because I think you but you have to show appreciation, right? So appreciation is going to be you know what what do you provide to them, right? And maybe it's education, maybe it's time off, maybe it's uh, you know. Uh, Tim Hortons gift cards. I don't know what the what it is. It's going to differ from organization and from person to person. But I think it is finding out what what visible action is going to show the those them that appreciation, right? And it could be different for different people. Um, but you I mean we really need to show people that we appreciate the fact that they're you know working extra hours or working long hours and. You know, let's be honest, nobody goes to the hospital because they're in a good mood, right? Like, it's not like, oh, I'm feeling great today. Let's go say hello to the nurse. No, it's, you, they're dealing with us 
uh, the population at their worst when there's a problem. So if that's the type of day is one problem to after another, after another, you know, finding ways to recognize them that alleviates that, I think is a, is a benefit, right? Yeah. And I think you, uh, nailed it on the head there. Looking at clients of ours that are most successful with using recognition and appreciation uh, to impact retention, um, you, you sort of touched on it in a bit of a roundabout way, but it's consistency and is it meaningful to that person, right? Because everyone's different, um, but people are not different in that they appreciate that constant, uh, those constant touch points of appreciation and recognition. So carrying on here. How can HR leaders in the healthcare space create cultures that are more attractive to today's employees? Increased transparency, increased communication, uh, sincerity, and uh, availability, right? Like just just communicate more, communicate often. Um, the, the analogy that when I took a job at a hospital in 2004, I remember talking to my aunt who had been a nurse for 35 years. And uh, I said, well, what made HR, you know, who are the best HR person, people that you've ever worked with? And, you know, what did they do? Because I was, I, you know, I was young at the time and I was so eager to be really good at this. That, and my, my aunt said, I only know one HR person. I'm like, so you worked for the same hospital for 35 years and you know one HR person. And I said, what made that person different? That person visited her area on a regular basis to say hello. Right. So ex- being accessible, being communicating transparently, being, you know, an advocate for the staff uh, as opposed to uh, policy police. Um, you know, I think I think I think just supporting the being visible and, you know, trying to build a culture that puts employees first and invests in them. on a cons- And I, I like what you said about consistency. Right. Because. You know, everybody does a, a, the NRC picker survey or, you know, Agni Peckham survey or whoever it is, and they run it, you know, every few years. And, you know, they gauge their, their, um, their results and stuff like that. But I honestly think that if you're getting the pulse of your organization all of the time, the, the, the need for these surveys, you know, becomes less and less, right? And I, and I remember going unit to unit trying to encourage people to, to fill out the survey because they there was such an apathy towards it because you know they're like oh they're going to survey us this but but nothing's going to change so you know polling and communicating for no reason and not showing quantifiable action is 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 worse than doing nothing right so um, you know I, I used to do this thing called grounding by design where I would talk to my staff every month I would you know, then to get a list of, of suggestions, a list of issues. And I would push that up through my leadership. And then, and we would address the, uh, those things and fix them. So then we could have a scorecard the following month that showed the things that would be fixed, right? Because it was giving quantifiable changes and uh, investments that we made in our, in our team. You know, I think your, uh, your, your comment around uh, making HR available and, um, sort of visible is, is, is a, is a great point. And I think about back in my high school days, um, the best principal I ever had was 
someone who actually served pancakes, pancakes to all the kids on Tuesday. He would go into the cafeteria and he'd be there serving pancakes and he'd be asking the students questions. Hey, what's working? What's not? And he would actually be taking real time feedback, uh, would be out there, you know, not, not tucked away in his office, not just, you know, this sort of high and mighty, you know, person, uh, but in fact was really connecting with the students and then implementing the feedback in real time. And so your comment made me think of that. Yeah, two things. Like, you mean the, um, uh, you know, same thing, like my, my daughter's principal years ago would stand at the front gate every morning at parent pickup or parent drop off and say hello to every kid, knew all their names, said hello to the parents. Parents would stop and talk to him. So he was managing the community's expectations before they ever became an issue because he had a pulse. He knew what the pulse, the pulse was, right? And one of the things I did when I, my first, first job managing recruiters is I said, you have a meeting every month with your client groups, right? So you, you have seven managers. Every month I want you to meet with those seven managers, but do not make them come to your office. Go to their office because their office is on the unit, right? Go there, meet people, talk to people and, and be visible because then I know that the nurses are going to see you're there because when you when you're short staffed, you want to know what people are doing to fix that problem, right? So if you're there, you can answer questions. You can say, "Yeah, we're, this is we went to this job fair last year. You know, we're investing in in this uh, incentive program, or you know, we've hired this number of people." Managing expectations of people so that they don't feel like they're in it alone is going to go a long way to retention as well, right? For sure. And that accessibility ties back to the things that you also mentioned around communication and transparency. So, so I, I love that. So a lot of current healthcare retention challenges have been linked to post-pandemic burnout. What do you think organizations in the healthcare sector can do to improve employee well-being? So, you know, it's, it, it's interesting because I've been, at, I, I, you know, I've been working in healthcare for about 15, 16 years now. So for a long time prior to the pandemic, right? And, you know, the pandemic is an exasperator. It is not the creator of the problem, right? Like we we had a problem uh, before this. And, you know, the system has to start building capacity for actual need, not perceived budgeted need, right? So we really need to identify what the needs of the, of the population is going to be and start building a system for that as well as uh, prorating that over the next five years, right? Or, or 10 years, because, you know, the only way to fix things are to add more, add more staff or, and, and or, sorry, and make the work easier, right? So, but to make the work easier, we need more people doing the work. So we need to increase team-based care. We need to increase the residency spots. Why do we have people going to med school in the Caribbean or in the US? Why can't they go to med school in Canada? You know, why are we seeing nurses uh, drop out of the profession, right? So a lot of it is until we fix that that experience. So the pandemic has moved us from 90% usage to 103% usage. So it's exasperated a problem and brought something to light because of the public nature of the pandemic. Um, and we need to really start looking at supply and demand, maxi- you know, uh, maximizing that, you know, we've got some new medical schools coming, so that's good. We need to do the same thing for nurses. 
and allied health staff and stuff like that, right? Like we need to train uh, enough people that there are more people that are, you know, uh, having to fight for a job as opposed to, you know, anybody getting a job that graduates, right? Um, you know, and then looking at the ways that we can, like get down and dirty in, in a clinician's day, figure out how we can make their work more, uh, you know, more palatable, right? Being a nurse is hard. It's always going to be hard. But can we take away something and, you know, use a technology or use uh, somebody like somebody else that can do that work? Like it's looking at, um, at you know, the right person doing the right work at the right time, as opposed to, you know, hoping a nurse is going to do all this work, right? Like, you know, maybe we need more PSWs or maybe we need, we need physician assistants like the U.S. or, you know, and, and truthfully, I think we need more nurse practitioners, Right. So, you know, you, you can only rely on more so much. So we have to look at how do we get more pr practitioners or pr clinicians, but also how do we make their lives better? So the organizations that are employee driven and employee first will outperform the organizations that solely look at the needs of the organization and then try and push that on the employees. I love that. I love that. And, you know, being so close to healthcare, reading the tea leaves, do you feel like we're heading in the direction of solving many of the, the challenges that, that we're facing here in healthcare? No. No, unfortunately. And I, I'll have to admit, I mean, you know, I, I, a lot of that comes from being in Ontario right now and, and seeing the, uh, the emerge shortages, right? And the emerge closures and stuff that's happening. I, I'm really... Uh, you know, I'm really worried about the sustainability of the system uh, unless we make drastic changes. And unless those changes are driven by the care providers and not by politicians, right? Because, um, you know, I'm not anti-politician by any stretch, but the, uh, you know, when someone in Queen's Park determines what the budget's going to be and, you know, we at, in February we can't do any more orthopedic, orthopedic surgeries, because we've run out of budget. I mean, this happened down in the London area, right? They ran out of budget, so they had to go two months until the new next fiscal year before they could do any more orthopedic arthroplasties, right? So, you know, until we focus on, you know, the the care providers and and stuff like that, like I'm really worried. You know, I mean, uh, next week I'm interviewing an eMERGE doc who basically has been going from eMERGE to eMERGE uh, to keep eMERGEs from closing. And he's often the solo emerge doc in these rural emergency departments. And rural health is getting worse and worse. There's no access to primary care because not as many physicians want to go work in a, remote, a rural area than would rather work in a suburban area. And we're not incentivizing them to do so. So um, I, I kind of feel like uh, Henny Penny or Chicken Little, the same as Sky is falling, but... I don't feel like we've done enough to um, to start writing the ship. So I think it might actually get worse before it fully gets better. It's a frightening prospect, Kevin. <laughs> it doesn't uh, it doesn't make me feel great, and it uh, you make it gives me some good encouragement to exercise a bit more, so I don't have to see a doctor. But uh, it's um, yeah, it's 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 worrisome, right? And and I I read an article yesterday in the Globe, I think it was that. You know, 16 emerges in Manitoba were closed on the long weekend. Can you imagine being somebody in that, in that you know, you're a, 
you're building your deck in one of those communities and you put a nail through your hand, well, you know, you're going to have to drive an hour, two hours to another emerge because your local emerge is closed. And that's just a minor, minor example. What about the heart attacks? Right? Like it's, you know, until we really hold, uh, hold people accountable to build a system that serves the needs of the community, um, you know, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're going to be at a tough spot. Well, uh, this has been a wonderfully informative uh, conversation. Uh, anything else you'd like to add, Kevin? You know what? I honestly think that as a, as a, as a community, we just need to continue to support those that provide our health care, right? And, you know, support them and try and ensure that people are held accountable and that our politicians are accountable, held accountable to, uh, you know, to give them and give the clinicians the necessary tools to do what they want to do, right? Well, nobody wants to, nobody wants to have to close an eMERGE department or, uh, you know, not staff it, uh, you know, uh, because, because of, uh, you know, it, it, they want to take the weekend off. That's not the type of people they are. You mean, they're doing the best they can. And I think we need to pull, hold the uh, leadership federally and provincially to task to build a system that, um, you know, serves the population. <laughs> so it's great advice. So with that, thank you so much for, uh, for joining the culture clinic. Appreciate the time, uh, and, and thoughts, Kevin. Recognition can be a great way to improve healthcare culture and retain more staff, but implementing a program in the sector has its challenges. Check out employee recognition for healthcare, the complete guide to learn how to do it effectively. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to follow us so you don't miss an episode. And don't forget to recognize someone for a job well done today. Mucho gusto.